Edwin K. Morris, and you are about to embark on the next Pioneer Knowledge Services Because You Need to Know, a digital resource for you to listen to folks share their experience and knowledge around the field of knowledge management and nonprofit work. Hi, my name's Stuart French. I'm a knowledge manager from Melbourne, Australia. The most interesting thing near me is the Dandenong Ranges. I actually live right at the base of the ranges. It's the most beautiful place here, just on the outskirts of Melbourne, like an hour from town. And it's got all these little English style villages, beautiful driving roads, and this amazing rainforest walk right across the road from our house. So even though I abandoned my family and moved to the city as a, as a young man, I'm actually closer to the bush and to lizards and kangaroos and everything and deer than I've ever lived in my life, which is awesome. I come from the country and cut my teeth with oil and gas as a young apprentice 30 years ago. I fell in love with expertise, with people who really know what they're doing. And so over my career, I kind of took an interest in that. I started in computers and radio and moved across into how does stuff work? How do people get so good? When you watch them, you're just transfixed by how well they do it. To be good at that, to do that expertise style knowledge management requires me to constantly work on my expertise. So I, I play the game of Go. I learned to paint and sketch. And um, I love driving fast cars around racetracks just because it scares the heck out of me. And I'm constantly pushing myself into that learning mode because the people I work with they're in that working mode. I need to have the empathy for the fear, for the change, for the worry that they have as they're doing this new thing, as they're learning from others, and then get them to a point where they're so confident that they want to share with others. And that's a huge part of knowledge management for me. Very cool that you're coming at this whole KM thing in a people forward kind of momentum. You know, people like tend to get caught up on definitions. Can you walk me through what knowledge is versus information for you? Uh, absolutely. In fact, it was that definition that got me into knowledge management. Hmm. I was working at Yarra Valley Water back, it was in the 90s, and there was this old guy, John, uh, and I'd sort of picked him out as the guy to go to. You know, he, he knew everything. And we had this massive fire happen north of Melbourne, huge uh, fire at a recycling plant. You know how they had these big bales of recycled paper and cardboard and everything. Oh, yeah. uh, a couple of them had gone up. There's massive water cannons that they were using to manage that. But they ran out of water. They had a couple of fire trucks there and there, there just wasn't enough water. So John jumps in his car, lights and sirens, flies across the city, manages to find this thing called a shutoff valve. So with water, they have different water levels with different pressure levels. Mm -hmm. So what he did is he cracked this shutoff valve and let the high level pressure into the low level main, which helped them get the fire out, right? The next day, it's his retirement party. <laughs> and he's telling the story of how he found this main, right? And I heard him mention the fact that they dug through four inches of bitumen to find the main head. The problem with shutoff valves is they're shut off. Yeah. You never use them. So they slowly get buried and lost over the years. I was doing the mapping at the time. And I said, John, how did you find that valve? And he goes, oh, have you got the map? And it turned out I did. I, so I went and got this big A0 map and we laid it out on the table. He says, right, here's the main, here's the high level area. And here's the shutoff valve. So I just went there 
uh, and I found this tree and I went 45 degrees out from the tree with the metal detector and we found the man and I did it. And I said, John, how did you know about the tree? He says, well, that tree oh was a sapling goodness. when I put the valve in 40 oh years ago. My. And I said, John, that tree is not on our map, right? And he says, no, we wrote it on the field cards, but you IT guys <laughs> decided that wasn't important. And I realised, you know, that I, I just had that moment where yeah, you realise, yeah, oh, my gosh, yeah. knowledge and information are not the same thing, right? That's a classic story of, of how knowledge is most dangerous when the period is long. You know, this is why people, you know, I really have huge respect for what the European Atomic Energy Agency does in KM because they're building a reactor that has to be disassembled by the same type of engineers in a hundred years time. No one's going to be still alive, oh, yeah. right? right? And right. in between you have engineers, the totally different sort of engineer, totally different experience, totally different expertise. They run nuclear power plants, they don't build them and disassemble them. That's what got me into KM, I, that, that idea that, oh my gosh, you can't just write everything down. A little bit of interpretation also. In that story, he basically said, you guys didn't interpret the knowledge I gave you. But then again, Correct. they didn't ask either. They didn't say, hey, is that tree important? Or why'd you yeah. put it on? Would you just like the tree? Is that why you put it on there? How do you future-proof an organization to where that gap doesn't happen? That's a great question. I find story is really important. I've always said context is more important than content. Okay, right? It's how you join the dots, not the dots themselves. Actually, a, let me tell you a quick story. My uncle passed away a few years ago and I was sitting at the funeral talking to an old friend of his who was a farmer. He'd had this massive farm just up the road from us and I loved talking to him because he just had so much experience and his son, unlike me, who was the bad farmer's son who went to the city, his son had actually taken over the reins and, and doing a great job, massive farm, really successful, which is great. But he mentioned in the conversation that his son had just lost several hay sheds, several hundred thousand dollars worth of hay to fires. I said, how did that happen? Like, you're an amazing farmer, surely you passed on to yeah. him how to stop that happening. He said, well, we kind of got tricked, right? So back in the old day, yeah. we used to have bales, you know, bales of hay. I'm sure you guys have them. And they're, they're about the size mm -hmm. of, of a large suitcase and you, yeah, you grab them by the strings, you can carry them on your knee. And that's how they did it. Yep. And then you'd stack them up in, in hay sheds. About the time that he was about to retire, they switched to round bales, which are much larger. They're a lot easier to handle and you don't really need to stack them. You just leave them in the paddock or the field, I think you call it. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to worry so much about the grass curing which is drying the grass out before you bale it. Because they're not stacked, if the grass is a bit wet, it'll warm up, but it won't get so hot that it catches on fire, mm -hmm. right? So as a result, he didn't really pass on that knowledge of how to cure the hay because it was lost knowledge. You don't need mm -hmm. to know that anymore. You've got round bales. Mm -hmm. So fast forward 25 years and we have a new technology come out, which is now a large rectangular bale. Just it, almost identical to the old ones, yeah. except now they're the size of a V-dub beetle. And so they're massive, these things. And the beauty is you can stack them. Mm -hmm. So somewhere we lost the, yeah. the ability to cure the grass. Right? And I remember my dad showing me he would actually, uh, we'd have to rake it and then leave it a few mm -hmm. days and rake it again. I remember him, I, I have this really clear memory of him picking up some of the grass and twisting it in his hands 
as he listened to it and then biting it. And I said to him at the time, how did you know how to do that? And he said, oh, this old farmer down the road, he he showed us how to do it because his father had passed away. My grandfather died when my dad was 17. So so these older farmers had sort of taken them under their wing and, yeah. and this was the sort of knowledge they passed yeah. on. So capturing that for an organisation is really important because you never know what's going to be done. When I first started my master's degree, we started talking yeah. about Nanaka and Seki and, and all this these ideas of writing stuff down. And I'm like, that's not my experience. There's manuals and things, but they never gave you the experience you need. It's always some old bloke or old girl that's helping you say, no, 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 you know, don't do that. I have the recipe to my mum's scones. I have the explicit knowledge, the written down knowledge. Do you think I can make those things? It's no. they're like little rocks when yeah. I make them. And I, and I, I worked out one, I sat with her one time and she showed me yeah. one of the tricks is you don't spin the cutter as you cut the dough. Right. And so that's not written down. Anywhere. Yeah, exactly. You've got to be with the expert. So there's that demonstration and then copying and trying and then correction. There, right? There's an element you're not talking about. And in both those examples, it was a person to person connection to transfer the knowledge but there's got to be an inkling of the, and I hate to say it like this, but you like the person, so you're going to tell them. There's some social connection there where, oh, you know, I'm going to tell you this. And not everybody gets the same. So not everybody gets the hidden secret. And it's not really a hidden secret. It's just because I have recipes too. For my mom, it's like a pinch, dash, a pinch of this. It's like the British Bake Off show where they give them the recipe to to follow, but they don't tell them how to do it. The expertise to know, the intuition is there in the expert, but it's not always easily transferred because it's easily forgotten. You know, in your own head, you just like, oh, everybody knows that. Oh, I guess I, I guess you don't know how to do that. So it's hard to elicit if the provider is filling it out because there's a lot of connect the dots that's happening in their brain that isn't making it to the paper. So what's the best way to get that out of somebody's head? Yeah. So for me, conversation like this or, or mentorship, like a look, we've had a couple of conversations about this because the, the modern way of thinking of things is that we want to be efficient. So we want to write stuff down. We want to have everyone working the same way, everyone at the Mm -hmm. optimal. What we're missing there is community. There's this ongoing dynamic. Mm. There's one thing I noticed early on, part of a company that was $5.6 million turnover when I joined it. And last year, it turned over close to half a billion dollars. When I left, it was close to 200 million. And it's just been an amazing success story. Fantastic local business that spread around the world. Mm. Trust me, mm-hmm. there was no right way. Everyone was making everything up as we built that business. <laughs> it was a mess. And there was a part of me that wanted that efficiency that was like, can we please yeah, just automate yeah. this, right? Just this eat, is mad yeah, that we're yeah. doing this manually. You know, yeah. this is crazy. But the CEO was kind of a genius. He had this feel for when it was time to lock something down and when it was time to let something play. Because the yeah. beauty of, of transferring expertise rather than skill that it can mold and adapt to the new situation. Hmm. A lot of people talk about knowledge transfer. I talk about knowledge creation. If you tell me something, Edwin, about running a podcast and and how you do the audio and how you manage the speaker and stop them going off train (laughs) like I do, then you're not actually transferring knowledge to me. I'm not making mental notes in my head. 
what you're telling me is modifying my knowledge. Oh yeah, I've had an experience like that. And, and I did this thing and, and I'm linking it all together. I'm creating yeah. new knowledge. But the beauty of that is yes, it's not a computer. It's not a direct copy, but I'm adapting it to what I know. So number one, I can now improve on it. And number two, I didn't live the same life as you. Right. I have a slightly military background, but I, the stuff that, that you're sharing that I've never experienced before yeah. that I now adapt and go, oh my gosh, in this domain, I could do this. And so that creates organizational evolution of practice. We really downplay that. We think, no, 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 there's the scientists over there. They do the research. They create. The research, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we copy. I want to bring up the, the definition of co-create. What you're talking about is an effort, a genuine effort to not only tell my story, you tell your story. It's not a competition, but it is a amalgamation of thought, creativity, ideas that is co-created. So the definition by Merriam-Webster is co-created is to create something by working with one or more others. The effort and the intent to co-create new knowledge, or not, it doesn't even have to be new knowledge, but modified knowledge, just like you're an example. If I plant one seed and you're like, oh, and it pops up somewhere else in your lifespan, then success, Woohoo! I did it. How heavy is that as, of a lift? Why is it so difficult? And why don't more organizations look at that soft skill, contextual connecting ability, and don't worry so much about the databases. So there's this sexy, sexy thing in evaluation called quantitized statistics. <laughs> if you could just measure it with a number, then it's gotta be better, right? Don't worry about people learning stuff. As long as they've been on the training course and we can tick that sucker off, then we're just fine. <laughs> and at least we won't be sued. I tell you, I, I currently work for the Country Fire Authority. And uh, I think we're going to do another podcast and talk a bit about that. It's a really exciting place to work. And But one of the things there is you, you talk to a crusty old captain and they don't really care what courses mm -hmm. you've done. We are. They want to know you. they can trust you on the fire ground because if something goes wrong, we all die, right? This is non-trivial stuff. They're serious. They, you really do need to know. And, and you've got to practice it. And we share the stories. I, we had a meeting last night at my local brigade. I'm a volunteer as well. And we had the meeting, it's all official. And then afterwards, everyone's standing around eating scones and cream and jam and things. And I just sat back as the knowledge manager watching all the storytelling happening. And one group was talking about some new technology that's coming through and some experience one of them had had with that sort of thing in their job. Another group was talking about a strike team that they'd gone on three years ago in the big 2019, 2020 fires that you may have heard of, the 6.7 million mm -hmm. hectares burnt and, and their experience there. So they're all sharing, you know, so we've got new firefighters coming into the brigade. They're doing this. My mm -hmm. job at CFA is a little bit harder. I've got the yeah. time and distance problem that you just talked about. So I've got all the brigades learning off each other inside the brigades, but I've got 1,200 of them. And if something is learnt at one end of the state, I need to transfer that to the other. Now you can do that with story, but you can also do that with lessons, with after action reviews and debriefs. You can do that through analysis yeah. and, and research. Yeah. And you can do that by putting the workload where it should be, you know, up at the top, mm -hmm. rather than on the poor people down below expected to read 160 documents a year about everything because they're gonna remember that. Really? They really they're gonna remember that. Not in my experience. So what we have to do is take yeah. those really no. important no. lessons and then think. Well, 
what are the structures that are causing that to happen? And now we've already kind of hinted around this. What are the barriers to knowledge transfer uh, or knowledge sharing? And is it just the skill set of listening and conversation? Is that the biggest barrier? I think a lot of the barriers that we deal with are structural. Let me let me explain what I mean by that. Okay. In my experience as an apprentice back 35 years ago, there was no concept of knowledge not being shared. Interesting. Why wouldn't you tell someone something they need to know? I was blown away when I visited the Middle East uh, at the knowledge sharing there. It's absolutely incredible. And I was talking to one of the heads of the army and he said, oh, you don't understand in Muslim culture, if I know something that you need to know and I don't tell you, that's a sin. And I was like, can we borrow that for Western society? Because we really need that. That's amazing. What an incredible culture to have that it's a sin if you don't help someone with the knowledge you have. And that's the experience I had as an apprentice. You stand around one of these old guys just through the love of the expertise they have or because they want to show off or because they want to lord it over you. It doesn't matter why. They want to tell you stuff, right? They're, let me tell you, young fella. And sometimes they're fun. Sometimes they're bad because you stuffed up. But they want to tell. For me, when I came in uh, and started doing my master's degree, I'm reading all this stuff about, oh, people don't want to share and there's knowledge hoarding and there's all this stuff going on. And I'm like, why does that happen? So I started looking into that. Why do people not share knowledge? That's not my experience. Of course, a lot of those are structural. I had I had a sales team up in- Define for me structural structural first. Are we talking hardware, software, yeah, sure. design of the company, right. orchestration, what? Yeah, so all of the above. So structural means okay. uh, how things are put in place. Got it. And that may be, it may be the hierarchy of the command structure. It could be communications rules. Mm-hmm. And, and standard operating procedures. It could be corporate policy, or it could be some really, really explicit cultural stuff. And uh, and we have some of that around CFA. There are ways we do it and ways we don't do it. One thing I wanted to bring up that my dad used to tell me as a young guy, my dad was a timber guy, uh, cut timber, sawmills, lumber, logging, all that sort of thing. And so he was a hands-on teacher. And he said, the best thing you can do is when you think you're gonna tell somebody Oh, I know how to do that. Don't say it because they're going to show you or tell you something. Could And if it duplicates what you already know, oh, well. But pretty much it's not going to duplicate what you think you know. Say, oh, show me. So there's a pride thing there too that seems to be a barrier. Very much. To transfer. Very much. Yeah. I mean, being teachable is is the highest compliment, I think. Yeah. Uh, I could be paid. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I used to think I was not teachable. I was bad because I would I would tell stories and I'd be reflecting back to them. Yeah, that reflective <laughs> listening, which would stop them talking, of course. But what I found was I remember a lot more because when people are telling me things, I'm relating it and I'm locking it into what I know and I'm walking away a different person. And the way I do that is by reflecting back and integrating that on the spot, right? Some people do that by using the name Edwin. Thank you, Edwin. I appreciate you telling me that, Edwin. For some reason, that helps them. Whatever works for you, right? But you're exactly right. You want to be teachable and you want to have a culture of being teachable and listening to others. Yeah. Uh, that's that's really important. Yeah. And so I love SOPs. I love I love it when you get a system working well and efficient, but I don't like it when it creates taboos and when it stops people learning. Uh, Legislated mediocrity, it drives me nuts. Um, I'm very much, let's do innovation, let's improve. 
Let's go to the structure of the CFA. Can you give us a brief overview of what that is, how big it is, what's its mission? Yeah, sure. So the CFA is um, the Country Fire Authority in Victoria. Victoria is the third worst fire state in the world. So the south of Spain is the worst, then California, and then Victoria. That may sound weird, but it's got to do with fuel load. So you need a climate that is wet enough to grow plants through the winter and build that vegetation, you know, and then dry enough in the summer that that all dries out and turns into fuel. If it's dry all the time and you don't have that much on the ground, it's never that bad. And if it's like Tasmania and it's wet all the time, it never dries out and becomes fuel. In Australia, we always have droughts and floods and mm-hmm. everything. And so that's a fires a risk all over Australia. But Victoria is just that perfect zone of really green winters, really dry summers, big fuel load. And to deal with that, we've traditionally done that with volunteers. CFA is, uh, was built in, I think, 1947. Uh, CFA came into existence as a legal body. But we've got individual brigades that have been around over 150 years. And they are amazing. These are small towns, medium towns out in the country. For those of you who don't know, Melbourne would be probably in the top 10 cities in America in terms of size. But unlike America, we just don't have the Baltimore, Annapolis type cities. We just don't have them. You're either in Melbourne with five and a half million people, or you're in a country town (laughs) with a couple of hundred. There's nothing in between, right? Outside of Melbourne, the CFA rules. We have the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, which is now the FRV. They look after all the city area. We have the urban interface and then the country, and it's very much about life and asset protection. And these volunteers, there's 1,219 brigades, uh, 55,000 volunteers, some of them being volunteers for over 60 years. Uh, just incredible, amazing people embedded in our communities right across the state. And I'm going to assume that the older brigades that were there before the organization was legal or formal, they had their own method of building and transferring knowledge. Was it all oratory? Was it just telling stories? Some of it was, yeah, but, but also they would come together. When you had a fire, people would come from all around to come in and they'd work together. Mm-hmm. They work on what's called sectors. They sectorize the fire. And okay. you'll have people from all over the state working on one sector. In fact, we've got this great practice that when you show up, you'll take one person from each truck in the strike team and put them in the local truck. And then the local oh, brigade fills one nice. seat in each of the visiting trucks. Yeah. So that local knowledge gets yeah. transferred in while you're working together, right? And I love that. That's a great That's a great way to do it. It's in these things. And then you make those friendships. And then it's like, yeah. oh, I, actually, you know, in the Alpine fire, I worked with Joe. He was from like <laughs> Chilton somewhere. They, he was talking about that at dinner. He was saying that they do that with the, you know, whatever. I'll give him a call. So the next minute, you know, away it goes. And we have these phone trees where we just call around. You know, it's very common to make 12 or 14 phone calls to find that one person who knows. Mm-hmm. We've done some work with Enterprise Search at CFA, radically successful, not because I did a good job, but because we chose to implement the technology in a way that kind of mirrored how they work interpersonally. That phone tree, that call a friend type style. You might be the first guy that said, we're going to take the technology and try to match it up to what is, how the users are already doing it. 
versus we're going to throw technology on something and make them learn a whole new method, right? I mean, well, so, who does that? Yeah. So when when I first got into knowledge management, one of the first things I came across was David Snowden's Kinevin framework, which is a simple, complicated, complex and chaos, right? I think that he's changed that to clear now. I, I heard somebody talk about explaining the differences and how you explain that to a, a layperson. And he used swimming. Clear, the, the bottom right hand, that's like the baby's toddler's pool right? Splashing around. There's, you see this, you do that. It works every time you're done. Complicated is like Olympic swimming. And that's where efficiency comes in, right? You want to get those, everyone doing the same thing and really organized. And, you know, just even the position of your fingers as you pull your hand through the water can add one tenth of your time and that sort of stuff. That's complicated. Chaos is like being at sea in a storm. They're coming at you from every direction. There's waves and swell and the combination of the two can tip your boat, get to land as quick as possible. And then complexity is like surfing and surfing with a couple of strong strokes at the right time. You can go four or five times the speed of an Olympic swimmer with one-tenth the energy output because you're harnessing the energy of the wave. And when I see the way people work in practice, for me, that's a wave. Why would I be sitting there paddling along with all my effort when I can jump on that wave and let it do 90% of the work for me. And all I'm worrying about is steering <laughs> and paddling like crazy to get on it, right? So that's kind of how I do a lot of my work. Even though I have a background in IT, I don't see myself as a, as a database mm. export or as a librarian or anything like that. I'm a, a culture engineer. Mm. I'm creating social systems. For me, concepts like nudge, concepts like the rabbit trap, don't run around trying to spear a rabbit, lay it out your breadcrumbs and have your trap there waiting for them. Ever been out with a Native American tracker? Their ability to see that little hole in the underbrush where the rabbits go through, and that's where he sets his trap, right? Well, you've got to look before you start setting traps, right? And I see so many knowledge managers rushing in and starting rolling out Confluence or SharePoint or something. They haven't talked to anyone. They don't understand how stuff gets done in the organization. You know, six months after I joined the CFA, I signed up as a volunteer. Because how could I manage the knowledge of 55,000 people when I didn't even know what knowledge was important to them? Good point. Good point. You got to get your feet wet. Absolutely. In the military, we call that ground truth. That translation of what is, it's not a foregone conclusion because I think you're right. I think a lot of people step right over that to get to some solution rollout or some big master plan or but it's such an easy thing to do. It's almost like in the medical field, when you go into the office to get your appointment, most often, they, what do they do? They, they do your vitals, right? Let's take your vitals, see how you're doing, take a snapshot, because if you don't bother to do that, you'll never know, and you'll never be able to get on that surfboard and be in harmony with what is. Now, you can easily make adjustments. Once you're on the board, So it's a lot easier to redirect than to stop and change. So I'm with you there. Before we go any farther, I want you to talk about how the technology now overlaps into the habit and the behavior of your organization. Yeah, I love it. So that for me is the critical part. So how do you, and we talked about co-creation before, a more important term is co-evolution. How do you co-evolve? the decision-making culture in the organization and the technologies that support that decision-making. Yeah. They literally have to evolve there. For me, there is never a magic bullet. There's no perfect software. It's 
what's the next adjacent possible that we can get the most value out of and that will not stop us, not create a barrier to moving forward, right? I was working with a group in Sydney, a bunch of salespeople who were not sharing their sales knowledge with the rest of the country. And I was told by the CEO at the time, you need to go up there, you need to tell these guys, you need to find out what they're doing to get such great sales. And then you need to come back here and train our salespeople in Melbourne, right? Uh, Okay, you know I'm a knowledge manager, great, (laughs) but that's not what I do, but I will solve your problem. So I jumped on a plane, I went up there, I actually visited the largest customer in Sydney about a uh, an IT, a, a business intelligence reporting issue. Okay. And I messaged one of the salespeople and said, listen, I'm going to see this guy. I'm fine. I can do it. I'm talking to him about this. But if you wanted to come along, just in case I said something wrong, you can sort of manage it because I don't want to damage the relationship. He was like, I'm there. I'll have a <laughs> coffee with you in the morning and then we'll go together. And um, I love this guy. Oscar, his name is a fantastic guy. So anyway, we spent the day together. We visited a bunch yeah, yeah. of customers and then like at 11 o'clock at night on beer number eight, I find out what the problem is. There's a $120,000 sales bonus that's split across the country. So if they teach other people to sell, they get a pay cut. Yeah, when I say structural, that's what I'm talking about right that's there. That's structural. So that's a barrier. That's a landmine. Created yeah. by the bonus structure. So I, I didn't bother learning what yeah. they were doing. I went back to the CFO. Yeah. We changed <laughs> to an open bonus structure. So the more you sold, the more you made, open-ended. And guess what? It took a bit to get it past the CEO, but all of a sudden, everyone's helping <laughs> everyone, right? So we were smart. We turned structure on its head. We did two components of the bonus structure. You get part of your bonus for how much you sell and part of your bonus for how much the whole team sells. Yeah? yeah, yeah. So we changed the structure. Now, what do you know? People are sharing knowledge all over the place. In fact, call each other and say, you idiot. I just heard Mm -hmm. through the grapevine. Why did you say that? We don't do it that (laughs) way. We do it this way, right? We've got to consider the structure. And so for me, there's this great novel by Neil Gaiman, Good Omens, uh, the demon is laying around doing nothing, right? And he says, aren't you a demon? Aren't, shouldn't you be doing evil? Shouldn't you be causing things? He says, I learned a long time ago, I can create far more angst and anger with one well-timed accident in peak hour London than I could with years of work, working one-on-one, right? And and it's kind of the same. I kind of feel I could do more as a knowledge manager for the world just by teaching a couple of executives how not to create the knowledge barriers than I could ever do plugging all the holes, right? I am a Neil Gaiman fan. I am a huge Neil Gaiman fan. So I think this is the first connection I've ever heard with knowledge management and Neil Gaiman, but I love it. Uh, One thing I want to pull up just so we get clear definition. Uh, Merriam-Webster says evolution, and I like this. Cumulative inherited change in a population of organisms through time leading to the appearance of new forms. I like the idea of the cumulative inherited change in a population. Mm -hmm. And then your example is premier to that because not everybody would have put the effort into trying to understand what the real real is like you approached it. You got a hold of somebody local. You you were able to just walk through it and just observe and try to understand and see all the parts. That sounds like an easy fix. And it probably was in the end. But who thought that was a good idea to begin with? 
when you start making your own organization compete against each other, of course, you're going to stop the flow. You know, you got, oh, whoa, whoa, don't talk to those guys. Terrible, terrible. And there's probably a thousand good examples of how not to do that. But so let's go towards now the technology that how does that interplay with the personnel you've got? And how do you get connectivity to all these volunteers? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's the, the problem to be solved. So um, we have an amazing telecommunications infrastructure here compared to the US. I've, I've worked in the US for eight years. And I was constantly in blackouts because it was a Verizon and not an AT&T. And oh my gosh, whereas here we've just got Telstra, we've got one company mm. that covers the whole country and your phone always works, right? But that doesn't mean we don't have massive black spots. You got to remember, we have a country the same size as the continental US minus New Mexico, right? Take New Mexico out, that's how big Australia is. And we have 25 million population. So less people live here than just in California, right? So we have a similar situation to British Columbia, where there's just not enough people here to maintain that level of infrastructure. So yeah, we've got, you know, repeaters and towers, cell towers going up and down the major freeways and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to go far off the track and you're, you, you don't have any mobile service. Or maybe you do, maybe you can make a phone call or an SMS, but you don't have internet on your phone, right? Yeah. So using yeah. digital systems is, is always an issue. We all have uh, printed paper maps in our trucks because we work in those areas all the time and you can't be mucking around saying, oh, my phone's out of service, I guess we just don't go. You know, no, there's a house yeah. on fire, there's two yeah. kids inside, we're going. We're very, very manual like that. But the use of technology, this gets to my definition of knowledge a little bit, uh, which we can talk about in a minute. But for me, data and information play a key part in the local generation of knowledge. And so if you stop seeing information as I'm telling you what needs to be done and start seeing it as what data and information do the people need to create the knowledge so that they can respond the best possible way in that situation. And that may or may not be the exact way that we have written down the manual. The UK really handles this well, where they have a thing called operational discretion. It's really nice. I won't go into it, but mm -hmm. if you want to Google operational discretion and, and Jessup, jump in, have a read, because the UK guys are really leading the way there. Um, for me, what we are doing in the ICCs, the incident control centers and the state control center, the way we manage intelligence and bring that in and then send that back out is wonderful. It's really good. But we use radios a lot of the time. And so one of the things we're doing at the moment is the pocketbook project, where we're actually putting an app on each of the firefighters phones that gives them access to key data. And then looking at concepts like um, the morning muster. So everyone's standing around getting the incident action plan in the morning for the next 12 hours of work. We've got a you know full control vehicle there with Wi-Fi on it. Yeah. Everyone pull out your phones, jump on the yeah. Wi-Fi, yeah. open yeah. Pocketbook. Yeah. That will download all of the maps you need for the day. Now right. out on the fire ground, you pull out the IAP, the printed plan, you scan the QR code and it opens that sector map and away you go having those key things there where they don't have the knowledge. Yeah, okay, you've got a Tesla on fire. I've never been to an electric vehicle fire. Okay, well, this is not a learning experience. You need to be knowing what you're doing around one of these things. And by the way, there's three people inside it. So now we've got you know ANCAP software that shows us the layout and where the fuses are and where the main power conduits go so you don't cut through them and it'll execute everybody. So this sort of knowledge you can bring up very quickly, very detailed, 
you don't need to train them. The, you know, the, number one, they'll never remember all that detail for every yeah. model of car. Oh, sure. Number two, th they'd probably remember it wrong and then go in with confidence, which is even worse. That's anti-expertise. And that's dangerous. So, so having that respect uh, and then sharing information that then helps people make good decisions, high-value decisions, safe decisions on the fire ground is super important. And that's where technology comes in for me. How do we yeah. support people making better sense of their environment, understanding and watching for those things? You know, we have mnemonics like laces and watches, which, which stand for words that on the fire ground we're watching out, yeah. you know, escapes yeah. and approaches, and, yeah. um, exposures and all that sort of stuff. This is kind of the same, only it's dynamic. Now you don't need to remember just a couple of mnemonics. Sure. You can, with a couple of taps, you can pull up key information you need that makes you almost indistinguishable from a long-term firefighter. Right. Well, I want to get to a couple of terms that came out of this pocketbook concept, because what you're doing is you're providing access, a point of use, and a trustworthy source, all in one breath that once used once to show value, then they're sold. And I would have to assume there might have been some older folks that said, I'm not using no damn nap. Might have been a little pushback somewhere, maybe. I think we have one guy that was like that. Yeah. One guy, one guy was like that. Okay. You know, when you've got something so complex, uh, like you're talking about with a Tesla, which I never even thought about until you just said that. I was like, oh yeah, I guess you're not spraying water on that. The point of use, uh, the user interface is actively in the moment or just about in the moment and they can draw upon expertise and electronic digital way that is useful and produces results that's success to me i'm what your job's done just knock off go home i mean that's that's beautiful yeah especially if we keep co-evolving the content on us usage yes. analytics is really important to me so we're watching uh, what people are searching for, who's searching for it. I, I can't tell individuals, but I can tell what district they're from and what role they are. So I can see that mm -hmm. captains mm -hmm. in District 6 are really interested mm -hmm. in safety right now. What's going on in District 6? Yeah. Uh, and so we can yeah. follow these trends and we can see what's going on. And, and mm -hmm. there's this thing that oh, people just should know. Well, guess what? People don't know, right? It's, it's <laughs> our job to guide them and make them aware. And so I'm a huge fan of Facebook type things where forget about teaching and training people, give them the awareness that they, in this situation, there's stuff they need to go and find out. So the key thing for us is we have two types of decisions. We have discretionary decision-making, we have non-discretionary decision-making. So if you're standing in front of a house that's on fire and you've just been told there's a couple of kids inside, that's non-discretionary. You are not pulling out your phone and Googling stuff at that point. You're following what you know, your primed recognition. Action. Action, go. go right? Go, bang, bang, go. bang, bang, bang. That's your platoon commander. Yep. You're making yep. it happen. So you need to prepare for that. And some of that's training. Some of that's heads up, just being alert, right? And we do that. Our team, our lessons team actually puts out those types of things. We just put one out the other day on the handbrakes. So we use a, a thing called a slip-on, which is a, a little Land Cruiser, a tray Land Cruiser yeah. with a 400-liter, so 100-gallon tank on the back of it and a little pump, little Honda pump. And we can get into all sorts of places, really tight, small, fantastic for bush firefighting, that sort of stuff. So the handbrakes are terrible. A lot of, you know, every season you know, we get out there again and people forget to pull that handbrake on and give it a real hard yank. There's nothing wrong with a the handbrake. It, they work as they're designed. 
you've just got to really give it a good yank. We had run roll into another and almost crush someone. So it's like, okay, let's send out another, we call them safety shares rather than safety alerts, because it's about just being aware. And that's a Facebook, right? Once you've heard that once, all you need is the reminder, hey, park breaks, right? Yep, park break, got it. So we don't need to be overloading people with information overload. And I see information overload as the biggest threat to good knowledge management. And this idea that we've got to publish more, tell more, get people to read more. We, we don't live in 1970 anymore. We do, we're not in an information scarcity. They get more information from their school <laughs> each year from their kids than they did in a whole year as a farmer back in the 70s, yeah. you know. So just respect people's time and they're, they're just their bandwidth, their intellectual bandwidth. So what's your definition of knowledge management? The definition of knowledge is super important for me. I know people like Dave Snowden say, forget it, it doesn't matter. For me, because people can make such a negative difference to their knowledge landscape by not knowing, it's better to have a slightly off definition than to have none at all. I mean, for me, knowledge is, it's an emergent, subjective phenomena that describes the collective memorizing and sense-making and all that decision-making aspects of the brain, right? But who's going to listen to a description like that? So the one I've sort of settled on is that it's the capability of a team or individual to process the available data and information and make decisions and take actions that create value. So that's the definition of knowledge for me, right? It's not memorized information. It's a capability to make good decisions and to take yeah. right action. Yeah. Make yeah. sense of the data you have available to you. That sounds like wisdom. Isn't that just wisdom? Possibly. The problem I have with wisdom, it's actually a past tense word. So you don't say, make sure you do something wise here. <laughs> what you do is you look at what somebody did and you say, man, they were really right. wise. Does that make sense? Yeah. So wisdom is a measure that they had what it took and they did it, right? Whereas knowledge is what you had before the action. So wisdom is the evidence of knowledge in action. for me. So when you combine knowledge with management, what do you get? Two things. The generation of that capability in your people to be aware of what's going on and to look before you act and to listen. And then on the other side, making the best, most validated, most on-point data and information available to them and accessible by them so they can make those better decisions. So they're the two sides of KM for me. How do you generate that capability, both at the individual and team level? I know the Army, Australian Army, does a lot of work on collective competence and how you actually have teams with competences and you train and you exercise for that. You don't just say a team's competence is the aggregate of all the competences inside the team. No, the team itself has a level of competence. And then the, the IT side. But the IT side is always subservient to making knowledge. You know, we have this fairy tale that we tell ourselves that if we just give people the right information, they'll make the right yeah. decisions. Yeah, exactly. Where's your evidence for that? I don't see that. It's not a given. It reminds me of the story called Who Moved My yeah. Cheese? Yeah. Very and much they so. overthought, they overthought, they overanalyzed, and they, they, they were, instead of just reacting to the situation and moving on, they kept fermenting. And so we can overanalyze the hell out of everything. And to a point where we're inactive or not Absolutely. taking action. And that's where we don't want to be. Yeah, especially in a fire context, but yeah, but even in a corporate context. Yeah. And that's another structural thing. If you've got a culture that sees mistakes as failures and they're taboos, we never do that. We don't make mistakes here. And so 
they're incredible in terms of their delivery now, mm-hmm. but in terms of their evolution of practice over time, it stagnates. And there's no surprise there. They're, they're not allowed to make mistakes. They're not allowed to learn. They're not allowed to innovate. Innovation is as much about taking some of those constraints off as it is teaching people how to create and how to innovate. And so that's why for me, knowledge and innovation are so tightly entwined. Yeah. Uh, you can't do one without the other, both ways. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and innovation, Stuart. It's been an incredible journey. My pleasure. It was lovely talking to you and it's, it's nice to meet you and get to know a bit about you. I really appreciated uh, reaching across the ditch. Uh, to meet one of the people that sort of ties it all together. I say knowledge management is like a shoelace. It draws lots of different things together. It doesn't touch the ground and it doesn't touch your foot. But if you've ever tried to sprint in a pair of shoes without a shoelace, (laughs) you'll know how important it is. For me, you are kind of like the shoelace of KM. You draw all the KM people together, which is like a shoelace of shoelaces. I love that. Thank you. You have just finished our latest Because You Need to Know, a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services. Please join us on LinkedIn and find us at pioneer-ks.org.